When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Eric Chemi. So much conversation going on right now. If the Fed is at the right interest rates, are we going to see a soft landing, a hard landing, or no landing at all? And are equities at all-time highs a good buy right now? So much to ponder. To talk more about this today, we've got Sam Burns. He is the investment brain behind Mill Street Research. Sam, thank you so much for joining me on the show. And I got to start with what's got you worried? What's keeping you up at night right now? Um, well, yeah, I guess I would say in general, I'm probably a little more on the more positive side relative to some of my strategist colleagues. But uh, the thing that would worry me for, you know, for this year really is if, uh, if growth slows down more than people expect. Last year was all about too much growth and too much inflation. I think that the problem this year would be too little uh, if the Fed stays too tight or there's another big shock um, from, uh, you know, from wars or the Middle East or something like that. I think the domestic U.S. economy is probably okay. But, uh, but the thing that gets me you know, worried is, is things that are outside the U.S. and, and much less uh, sort of under the control of uh, the domestic uh, economic situation here. So, you know, what, what gets me is so your latest portfolio strategy note coming out, you know, just came out January 17th, right? So it's just days old. You're increasing your overweight in stocks. And here we are at all time highs, right? And I've been asking other people do I really want to be buying stocks at all-time highs, right? The last time we saw this two years ago, wasn't it like the first day of the year, 2022, right? Like Jan 2 was the high and it went straight down the rest of the year and it never came back all the way up until now. And here you are saying, you know, I'm I'm not just staying long, I'm getting more long right now. Tell, tell me about that. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, psychologically for a lot of people, you know, buying it, you know, after th- things have moved up a lot or there's they're at highs is very difficult. It, it seems like you've missed it and it seems like it's got to be, the wrong time to buy. Um, now, if you look back, you know, historically, the market spent a fair amount of time, you know, making new highs or being close to their highs. Um, so even though, yeah, you can certainly pick points where it would have been a bad time to buy, um, that's often not the case. Um, and in my mind, it's more a matter of we've been through two years of basically no returns. So it's not like we're really extended on a longer term standpoint. Uh, we've got some momentum over the last few months. And that's part of the reason that I think we'll continue to go up. Uh, or at least stay, you know, stay positive for a while longer. But I think that the fact that the uh, the interest rate backdrop is shifting from one of higher rates to one of at least stable or lower rates, inflation has become much less of a problem, uh, and earnings are holding up, uh, means that stocks are going to be better than the alternative. So bonds, cash, uh, other assets. I think U.S. stocks in particular uh, are going to beat the alternatives. So that's why you got to be overweight. The classic Tina, right? T I N A. There is no alternative to stocks. Is it is that really your thesis though? Is it just more? I don't love stocks, but I hate everything else more, and and I don't want to be in stocks, but I've got no choice. Or is it that you're like saying no, no, I really want to be in stocks regardless of the alternatives right now? Well, no, I think uh, I have do have a more positive view on equities and have for for you know over a year now, um, and sort of kind of maintained that. And I think that you know, a lot of it is because you know earnings uh, are in fact you know still rising, and that's what you know drives stocks in the longer term. And uh, but you do have an alternative now that you didn't have, you know, a couple of years ago. And the fact that, you know, cash yields four or five percent. And so uh, that is an alternative and certainly a better one than we have had for most of the last you know 10 or 20 years uh, where rates have been much lower. So it's less a matter of I hate everything else as a matter of um, if you have a, a relatively solid economy and moderate inflation and the fact that rates could come down. That's usually better for stocks than for other assets. So bonds don't get to benefit from growth. Uh, stocks do. And so if you think there's going to be some growth still, uh, stocks are the asset that benefits most from that. 
So that's a good point. You mentioned cash is yielding 5% right now, right? Or just the safest bonds. So you got to be pretty confident that you're going to get even a lot more than 5% on returns, you know, given the risk involved, right? So what do you see as a this year, 2024, let's call it large cap S&P 500 kind of return? My guess is you're expecting more than 5%. Yeah, no, my guess would be that, that you get more than 5% and that, uh, you know, that something in the 10 to 15% range would probably be historically, you know, typical um, if you figure that 2022 the end of 2022 is kind of a bear market low in some ways uh, that we're only you know a little over a year into this uh, bull market cycles tend to last uh, significantly longer than this uh, three to four years is more typical so I think on a time basis you've got more time and I think uh, on a kind of a uh, earnings and valuation basis there's potentially you know somewhat more more to go there so I think there is more upside for stocks um, I think um, you know cash is fine in the sense that you want to probably have some in the sense just as an asset allocation thing. Uh, but I think overall, uh, stocks will give you a better return uh, than cash will. And then you know, one of the things you talk about in your report here is removing the Fed headwind. It's allowed risk appetite to return. Your view is the Fed will likely cut rates this year, maybe not as aggressively as the bond market thinks, but the trend in rates is lower instead of higher. And we have Howard Marks out there, right, the billionaire hedge fund manager on Tuesday, talking about rates being closer to more than 3% rather than these, these five numbers and being artificially high. Do you see this aggressive cutting cycle here making a big difference? Well, in my mind, it's less about kind of how much or how aggressively the Fed cuts as the fact that there is there are cuts on the table. They're openly discussing lower rates and they realize that rates now are almost certainly too high, meaning that the, the five or five and a half percent you know, policy rates in a two to three percent inflation environment is excessively tight. Uh, that's higher than they need to be. And then it's just a question of, you know, how far and how fast they want to kind of bring things down. I mean, if you remember the last time this really happened was almost 30 years ago in 1995, when we had uh, the economy uh, slowed down, inflation came down, but there wasn't a recession and it was a, essentially a soft landing. And the Fed cut rates, I think, three times um, from the peak. And that was enough to set off a, a strong bull market, big gains in stocks uh, and, and a pretty solid economy in 95, 96, 97. Um, and so I think that's what kind of some people are looking at it as kind of be a historical analog. You don't need a huge number of cuts as long as you know rates are kind of high and moving down. Um, that means that you've got, again, a tailwind rather than a headwind. And the Fed's realized that it's probably too tight and is looking to loosen. Dig into that a little more, because I think I want people to really reflect that it's not how many cuts you make. It's not how aggressive you're cutting policies, just the fact that you are cutting. You think just the direction itself is all that matters. I think so in general, yeah, in terms of just getting investors to think along those ways and to have a, a risk appetite, like the 5% that you're getting in the money market right now won't last. That you know, six months or a year from now, it'll be, it might be four or something less. I don't know, but it won't be as, as high as it is now. And so you got to think about if you're going to allocate long-term money, do you want to put it in a money market fund and have that, you know, the interest rate go down? Or do you want to think about other assets that can participate in longer term growth, as long as you kind of think that the general U.S. economy uh, will hold up and earnings will hold up, um, you know, not, and not go into a bad recession and, and you know, falling earnings and things. So I think as long as you're reasonably comfortable with that general perspective, which I am for now, at least, um, then that makes stocks a more attractive asset class, um, even relative to uh, what looks like a high rate now that may not last. And, and before we turn to stocks in a second, I want to just focus a little bit, because I'm not sure I agree on this, right? You're saying inflation over the last couple of years was mostly due to COVID in Ukraine, supply shocks, a little bit from fiscal stimulus, and had relatively little to do with the Fed. It's not the 1970s. I was under the sort of impression, right, from sort of my reading that this was all from government stimulus, right? And that Ukraine doesn't have that much of an impact on what we're doing here, and that the, the COVID stimulus, right? The COVID stimulus, the, the big government spending plans, whether it was, I, I lose track of the name, Build Back Better or Inflation Reduction Act, which to me is like the Inflation Increasing Act, right? Because they're putting more money into the economy. All the stimulus, all the just free money for people. To me, that felt like that's probably why prices are up. But to tell me why, why I'm wrong here. Well, I think, I mean, there was definitely an influence from the uh, the stimulus, both from the COVID stimulus and the uh, the more infrastructure related stimulus that came along, uh, you know, somewhat later, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Infrastructure Act, the CHIPS Act. Um, but I think in some ways that's 
those are the reasons why the U.S. economy has done much better than most of our other the other economies in Europe or you know, China or a lot of other places uh, that didn't have that kind of fiscal policy. And I think in many ways, when you look at the, the thing, the prices of things that went up and the pattern they followed, it was much more directed by the things that were in short supply and that were disrupted by COVID. Um, and then there was then the kind of response to that um, than it was by where the fiscal money was going. Um, and you also, if you think about, you know, other countries did not do the same fiscal policy we did, but they had very similar inflation patterns. Uh, if you look at Europe and you look at Canada, you look at a lot of other markets that did not do what we did, the same, you know, pattern in inflation, a big jump in 21, 22, and then starting to roll over now, even if they had very different fiscal policies, kind of tells you that it wasn't just U.S. fiscal policy that drove it. It was, you know, COVID, the, the global shocks that were happening. And some of that was, a lot of it was COVID. Some of it for a little while, I think it was Ukraine because of the oil and food price impacts. But a lot of that's really gone the other way now. And so commodity prices are way back down. Uh, inflation in the U.S. is down, but it's also falling uh, in most other countries too. So you can't really tie it to just U.S. policy if it's happening elsewhere. Then it makes you wonder: Does does the policy matter then? Right? If it's if the if the policy didn't have an impact, then should politicians get credit for anything they did? It's like, well, doesn't matter that you did all this. You just you increased the debt, and we didn't actually end up in any better situation than the other countries that might have done nothing. Oh, I think we have definitely much better off than the other countries that didn't do it. Uh, if you look at the the growth rate of GDP and, and incomes and unemployment, um, the U.S. is is way ahead of most of the peer countries in terms of recovery from COVID, uh, economically speaking. Um, and that's it's also showing up in U.S. earnings growth as well. Corporate earnings in the U.S. are holding up far better than they are in, in other countries. So I think the policies did work in the sense that they kept the U.S. economy doing much better than it would have otherwise, given the size and the magnitude of the global shocks that we had. I mean, they're really big shocks. So they required some pretty big you know, responses. And I think we also kind of learned the lesson that after the financial crisis in 2008, the fiscal response was kind of too weak. And we had years and years of basically too high unemployment and too weak of growth uh, because there just wasn't the fiscal policy to support it like there is, uh, has been more recently. So I think the U.S. has done a much better job of managing fiscal policy relative to other countries uh, that don't have that kind of coordinated fiscal policy like we had. Okay. So then that, that's a good way to think about it. It's not how I had been thinking about it before. So I appreciate getting to hear that, that other approach. I'm like, okay, like we are doing better than other countries, right? Like I think most people would agree, Hey, we're not Europe. We're not China. We're not some of these other places. And maybe that, that is the difference there. And that takes us to equities, right? That takes us to looking at U.S. equities. Certainly, if you've been in the Hang Seng for the last couple of years, you lost 50% of your money, right? And I think that's what people are afraid of here, right? People are afraid of, oh my God, I don't want to buy here at all-time highs. And I'm looking at 10 years where I haven't made the money back, right? It's like this, and it, it just doesn't come back. I'm afraid of a Hang Seng outcome, or I'm afraid of the Fed tries to cut inflation comes back like a zombie, right? It wasn't dead yet. It's coming back. Here we go. Um, you know, what, what do you say to those types of fears? Because we hear a lot about that right now. Well, no, I think um, I think you're right in the sense that uh, U.S. equities definitely uh, kind of look different than a lot of non-U.S. equities, whether it's the Hang Seng or, or even European equities. Um, the U.S. has been outperforming the rest of the world really at least the last 10 or 12 years. It's been a long time now since uh, non-U.S. equities have systemic, systematically outperformed the U.S. And a lot of that is because the U.S. economy is much you know, sort of stronger and more, more robust and, and earnings have grown faster in the U.S. than they have elsewhere, again, for over the last decade, not just recently. Um, so there's a good fundamental reason for that, uh, for the U.S. to have outperformed. And yeah, if you've been in, certainly in Chinese stocks have been terrible. And I've been underweight and avoiding Chinese stocks for, for a long time now. And uh, and the earnings, you know, trends really corroborate that. The earnings have been much weaker, uh, in, you know, in China and uh, a lot of other countries than they have in, in the U.S. So, um, so you know, equity allocation regionally does make a big difference. Um, if you've been in non-U.S. equities, and yeah, you might have a different, you know, kind of view of things. Uh, but overall, I think um, equities and U.S. equities and the U.S. large caps in particular um, have been the place where the fundamentals have been best and have been best positioned to take advantage of the global trends. So like, you know, large cap technology stocks, you know, that's where a lot of the money has been going for years now. And the U.S. companies um, that are you know dominant there have been the best place to benefit from that. So I think there's there's a sort of a, uh, a, a general tendency for the U.S. economy to have done better. And there's a particular uh, way that the U.S. equity markets are aligned 
to benefit from a lot of the kind of global secular trends uh, that we've seen over the last few years. The classic Magnificent Seven, right? U.S. equities, large cap, tech. You know, we know what those companies are, Mag. Whether it's those seven companies or others that are that are similarly positioned, they're going even faster, way up higher, more so than the S and P five hundred on an average basis, right? They're pulling up everything else. And yet you're saying you want to stick with large caps. You want to stick with these names, despite the fact that they've run up enormous numbers here. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's some of it is, uh, you know, kind of the investor behavior, you know, momentum uh, kind of idea of, you know, you want to kind of, at least in the intermediate term, stay with what's working and not try to fight the trend too much because that can become very expensive trying to catch falling knives. But uh, the other is that, yeah, again, the underlying fundamentals are there. I mean, the reason they've gone up a lot is their earnings go up a lot faster than other companies have. And, um, and they, they have much better balance sheets and they have, you know, um, you know, sort of intellectual property and things like that that other companies don't have. And so uh, they're, they're more resistant to, you know, higher interest rates. So that's why even though a lot of people think, you know, higher rates are bad for growth stocks or, you know, long duration stock, as they're often called, um, that historically has not been the case. Um, they're much less sensitive to interest rates than companies that are smaller or, or more cyclical or need to borrow a lot more. Um, so the big cap tech stocks and, and other companies, you know, are much more insulated from that than uh, a lot of other companies are and have, uh, you know, the benefit of kind of the underlying, you know, U.S. economic growth. So, yeah, to me, it makes sense in some ways still that I see stronger earnings estimate trends in those companies uh, than I do in a lot of other areas. Um, so as long as that's the case, I'm happy to go with them. Now, if that changes and, and their earnings estimates start to falter, the momentum starts to weaken, or they get so expensive that there's just no way to justify their valuations, then yeah, then I'd become more cautious and want to look to, to other areas. Uh, but I don't see that quite yet. That was going to be my question is, but they are very expensive, right? Or like some people think they're expensive. So when do you when do you draw that line on this is too expensive? Because all the factors that you've said I think we would agree a lot of people know those factors, right? There's nothing surprising in what you're saying. And that's why these stocks have gone up so much, right? So now it's a matter of, okay, I know they're up. I know why they're up, but I don't know how much more they're going to go up. So where do you draw that line on now it's too expensive? Yeah. And like I say, a lot of ways, you know, I'm kind of looking for those inflection points in the underlying fundamentals. And, you know, I track that by looking at the, you know, what the aggregated kind of indicators of what earning analysts are doing with their earnings estimates. Uh, you know, at, at the margin, are they raising, still raising numbers? Are there still surprises coming through and ca causing them to push their, uh, you know, sales and, and earnings estimates up? Or are they starting to kind of, you know, trim them uh, or, or even cut them more aggressively? Uh, in which case you'd say, okay, whatever the good news was has now kind of ended and they're starting to pull back. Um, so I haven't really seen broad-based signs that they're starting to cut estimates in those leading technology-related areas yet. Um, that would be the thing that I would worry about. And if you think about an example like, uh, I don't know, NVIDIA, where at the beginning of last year, it was very, very expensive on a forward PE basis, um, you know, three times the market multiple, I think, something like that. But their earnings went up so fast, that they're actually cheaper now than they were uh, a year or two ago, even though they've gone up, you know, 200%, because the earnings have simply gone up even faster than the stock price has. And I think, again, nobody expected that level of, of earnings growth. Now, that's an extreme example, but... Um, it is still possible to surprise the upside for some of these companies, uh, I think. Um, but that was really the story of 2023 overall. Most people came into last year expecting earnings to be down and the economy to go into recession, and it didn't. Um, so that was you know better than expected. Um, now the bar is somewhat higher, as you said. People are seeing it more and expecting it more. So you'd have to have a, a little bit more uh, to get things to go further on the upside. But we still haven't seen things looking like they're turning down. I think that's the key thing that if you, at least if you've got uh, the interest rate inflation situation looking better and earnings holding up, you've still got on balance uh, a case to be made for equities and some of those tech names as well. I, I think that's a good point. Just thinking about like an NVIDIA example, it's gone up, but it's cheaper, right? right. For what, exactly. what's expected. So I think that's something for people to, to ponder and think about, right? It's gone up, but what you're expecting out of it, you're, you're what do I say? Like the expectation is, is a, uh, is higher? Well, yeah, it's a higher expectation. So the price for what you're paying for that expectation is actually relatively lower than it was before. So that is a good point and, and adds some nuance, I think, to the conversation of, okay, do you want to buy something that's up 5X, right? It's like, well, but, but now their forward earnings is 10X, right? Or whatever the number is, right? It's actually, you're getting a discount. 
you know, the one thing that we didn't get to yet, because you mentioned stocks, you mentioned large caps, small caps. And I think that's a good point too, that the large caps are often less sensitive to rates. But then it means that rate cuts shouldn't help them as much, right? Like if, if you think there's rate cuts, wouldn't you say, okay, then the rate sensitive stocks should now catch up, maybe more of the small caps? No, and I think that that is uh, a good point. And uh, we've seen certainly the financials uh, are in an area that you know has been benefiting from uh, the rally in the bond market that's kind of anticipating the rate cuts. And, um, and so what we would expect is if the Fed does in fact follow through and cut rates this year, that you know, smaller cap companies that are more sensitive to, uh, to, to short-term interest rates and to, they need to borrow and are more constrained in terms of their access to credit, um, those would be the ones that would potentially benefit more than some of the large caps, um, which tend to have you know, much more cash and less debt uh, and are less sensitive to that sort of thing from, on a fundamental basis. So it may be that, that the lower rates will help stimulate you know, generally the economy and you know, housing and autos and other things like that in terms of consumer demand, but will also help um, those companies that have more restricted access to credit have to pay more for it. Uh, if they see, you know, relief on that sense uh, from the Fed, then they would get a benefit, you know, later in the year. Uh, so I haven't quite seen it yet. I want to see if the Fed really does kind of come through with this. But uh, but that would be the, the the next leg is to broaden out the base of uh, kind of performance within the U.S. equity market because I think that's the reason large caps and particularly the tech stocks have led and small caps uh, a lot of ways have lagged is because of that relative sensitivity to interest rates, which have been going the wrong way for small caps and could shift uh, later this year. We haven't touched on commodities yet. And I know in your views, you see them as weaker. Are you expecting or afraid for a massive collapse in commodities this year? I don't necessarily see a collapse, uh, but I think that uh, uh, the general trend in commodities is probably gonna be flat to lower. I think that a lot of commodities are pretty well supplied overall, including oil. Uh, and natural gas. And I think a lot of only things that really have kind of tend to push the other way have been these sort of occasional shocks of, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, the war in Ukraine a couple of years ago or uh, concerns about the Red Sea right now. But those are all kind of temporary disruptions rather than real you know, underlying supply demand things. And I think a lot of that is also tied to China. Uh, for the last 20 or 30 years, uh, most of the incremental demand for a lot of commodities has come from China's growth and their demand for, for a lot of things. And they're really just not going to produce that kind of level of demand growth anymore. I don't think China's necessarily going to fall apart, but I don't think it's just going to grow anywhere near as fast as it had previously. And they don't have scope to sort of stimulate and to do that kind of really aggressive um, you know, buying that they, they have done in past years. So to me, it's the fact that the global economy is sort of generally going to be slower and uh, China in particular will be less of a, a source of demand. And that there actually is, you know, plenty of commodities around for what we need, given that, uh, you know, demographics and uh, technology and all that kind of thing tend to be kind of disinflationary influences uh, over the longer term anyway. So, yeah, some underweight commodities um, and, and don't really see them as, a, as an area to go into unless you're going to bet on a, a supply shock of some kind, uh, which is certainly, of course, hard to predict. Why did China just screw up so badly, right? The whole idea of command and control economy, one party system, we will tell you what to do. We are so smart, da, 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 we're the threat, we're gonna be the great blah, blah. And then it's like, this is not working, right? And they, you know, the whole idea that the Americans are are dumb and look at the West and look at us and, and it's just, it's not working, right? So where did they go wrong where they have full control of their government. They have full control of everybody. They can do whatever they want and they can accomplish those things if they want to get it done. Do they, do they focus on the wrong goals? Are they incompetent? Is it corruption? Because well, they have all the natural resources. They have a lot of natural resources to, they, they build everything. So I'm very confused. What, and I think a lot of people are too. No, you're right. And, and there's been a, a lot of discussion and kind of confusion, I think, about you know, what's happened with China. I mean, I think big picture, I mean, there's a lot of things going on and certainly you know, things like corruption and having a one party system um, are there's there's downsides to that for sure. And they're, they're realizing that now. But I think a lot of it is really just that their whole structure is different than what we think of in the sense of they basically decide what they want GDP or whatever to be. Uh, and we want it to grow up six percent or eight percent or whatever number they choose. And then they just go out and build things to make it happen, even if they don't actually need them. So there's been a lot, there's been years and years of trying to sort of use 
building bridges and roads and, and you know apartment complexes that people can't afford to live in, all these kind of things that they didn't actually need um, just to make you know GDP growth look look better and to kind of keep things going. And now they're kind of realizing they have all this excess stuff, and households don't actually have money to spend to to, to do it. And so uh, they have a very big mismatch between kind of the uh, uh, export and infrastructure driven uh, spending that they focused on versus kind of domestic consumption, which is what you really need to have kind of long run real, you know, uh, growth. Uh, whereas the U.S. has been kind of more the opposite and has been, uh, you know, runs a trade deficit as a much more consumer driven economy. Um, so I think that, you know, 30 years ago, they needed to build a lot of infrastructure. Um, they didn't have it. Now they do and they're still building it. And now they, they've kind of over invested and did malinvestment and are now having kind of, you know, take write off some real estate and all these things. But they don't have a, a system designed like we do, you know, for companies to go bankrupt and take the loss and write it off and then move on. It kind of just stays there and, and waits for the government to do something about it. And that's a very sensitive political process. And so a lot of things that would happen in our system wouldn't happen over there, at least oh, at the same time. I, I didn't realize that. Talk to me about this bankruptcy or or lack of bankruptcy option there, because that is one of the great features of the American system, which is what allows entrepreneurs to be like, you try it, you fail, you try it, you fail. Someone's going to eat the money on that, right? But at least you can you can have your nine lives and you can keep trying. And we know a lot of great companies are from multiple previous failed entrepreneurs. Oh, sure. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's that's the thing is that, uh, you know, we have a system that's more designed to have, you know, failure and then, you know, you move on. Um, and as long as it doesn't become systemic, um, where the you know the banking system or the whole economy is threatened, then that works you know reasonably well. Um, but if you're in a one-party system and um, you have you know where it's designed to you know to be very top-down kind of driven, then you know admitting mistakes or saying something failed is a very different proposition. Um, and that you have if you have if you're kind of agreement with your uh, you know the populace is that you let us be in charge and we'll make sure that growth continues no matter what, then you made a promise you can't keep. Um, and that's, I think, the, what they're running into now um, is that uh, they just can't keep growing in the same way, uh, even though they keep trying to. And then they're, they're realizing that, uh, um, they're, you know, keeping building things you don't need is not a good way to, to, to structure the economy. So that's why you wouldn't even buy even at the on those lower prices or at the lows here, because you think just the structure of how they've set up their government, their capitalism system, you think the structure is so bad that you wouldn't even want to come in here at these lower levels. Well, I, I'm never going to say you know don't buy something ever. There's always a price for everything. Um, but what I see in my you know again in the earnings estimate data, looking at the you know company level, you know six or eight hundred Chinese companies, and looking what the analysts are doing with their earnings estimates, um, they're not. They're, they're very weak. They're still, you know, cutting their earnings estimates pretty aggressively across a lot of different companies in China and Hong Kong. And so that tells me that whatever's happening over there, there's been no real signs of improvement at the margin. Things aren't getting, you know, less negative uh, to the degree that you'd want to see to really put money in there. And so if you have structural issues, uh, you have issues of, you know, whether, um, you know, high technology, you know, chips and things from the U.S. or elsewhere are going to be able to, you know, are going to influence their, their growth. Um, so they have geopolitical issues and they have kind of bottom up fundamental issues in terms of their earnings. Um, you know, I would want to see some of that needs to change to make me want to, to you know, take a, a longer term you know, view on it. And certainly tactically, you could you could trade bounces and there's you know, maybe, you know, uh, short term things you could do. But uh, but so far, I haven't seen evidence of the fundamentals really changing there. And therefore, even if they are somewhat cheaper, uh, they have to get really, really cheap, which they aren't yet or uh, fundamentals get better. I'm looking through your your research here as you go through some of this, and it's got a lot of details, right? But you you keep talking about this this model of yours, right? Your your benchmark model, overweight, underweight. Walk us through what what this typical model looks like, because you've got you know cash, long term bonds, small caps, large caps, equities. I'm I'm curious what the model is, and then I'm curious is this how you actually invest your personal money? Um. So I, you know, I try to keep my personal money pretty, you know, conservative, just because I want to make sure there's no conflicts of interest with what I'm telling people to buy versus what I'm doing myself. Um, and Mill Street Research uh, does not manage anyone else's money. So just to be clear, that whatever advice I'm giving is uh, is sort of, you know, uh, straightforward, meaning that there's nothing else going on that I have a, 
another incentive to- well, You're not getting paid by somebody to say something. Yeah. Right, yeah, I can be bullish or bearish. No, there's no investment banking. There's no trading operation. There's no asset management here. Um, so the idea, yeah, is to have an objective anchor to you know what I'm doing. And that's really been my thing all my whole, you know, the last 25 years I've been doing this is to have you know testable objective indicators that will keep me kind of focused on what matters and not get distracted by what's in the headlines. It's very easy to read articles and things and say, oh, this must be you know what's most important right now, or I should buy or sell based on this, and then only to find out, well, everybody knew that, or that's that's old news, or um, it's just not relevant. Um, so the like the the global equity risk model, for instance, that's kind of the cornerstone to my you know risk on risk off views. Uh, you know, has eight different indicators in it, and they're all you know designed and tested to kind of tell you what's going on in different aspects of the market and which ones are bullish and which ones are bearish. And if the majority of them line up bullishly, then it's usually historically been a good idea to be bullish and vice versa. So that gives me a way to um, objectively say, you know, this is the set of indicators that I trust. And they're telling me that right now this is a bullish scenario uh, because, you know, equity price momentum is good. Volatility is pretty low. Uh, credit conditions are good. Uh, the Fed may be lowering rates soon. Um, those are all conditions that have historically been pretty good over, say, three to six months. Uh, looking out uh, for equities relative to say you know, cash or, or bonds. Um, same thing with the small cap, large cap. There's a model there um, that tries to figure out you know, what part of the cycle are we in? Uh, are we in the early stages when small caps tend to lead or are we in the later stages when large caps tend to lead? Uh, and it's been kind of telling me later cycle lately. So that's why I've been favoring large caps. But again, I want to have something that I can um, test and anchor and kind of point to. And, uh, and clients really seem to like that. They, they want to have something objective that they can uh, kind of analyze and follow along with me. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. And, and just tell me a bit about, you know, who is Sam Burns, right? Where did, where did Mill Street come from? What were you doing before, before you, uh, you know, launched this? Yeah, so for, uh, for a long time, I worked at different uh, um, investment research firms. I uh, started off in uh, Ned Davis Research down in Florida um, about 25 years ago. Um, I was there for about five years and you know, built a lot of models, did a lot of writing and things there, and then moved up here to the Boston area to work for uh, State Street Global Markets, uh, again, doing similar kind of macro quantitative research. Uh, then I worked at Brown Brothers Harriman for a little while and, uh, and then Oppenheimer and Company uh, until about 2016 uh, when uh, I started Mill Street Research as a way to kind of pull together all of the work that I've been doing over the years into one place and be able to do it independently. Uh, not having a big brokerage firm or, or you know, investment bank or whatever kind of looking over my shoulder and telling me what to do, um, that I could do it my way and, uh, and and give clients you know exactly what I thought was good and what they wanted uh, without any kind of constraints. And so I've been doing that, yeah, for seven or eight years now and um, uh, mostly deal with institutional clients, but anywhere from a big mutual fund company all the way down to small investment advisors uh, or anyone in between. I like that you said that you left sort of big corporate because you don't want people looking over your shoulders. You wanted to be able to have those shackles removed. What should the regular investor out there be be concerned about when they're seeing the, the big corporate research, right? The big, the big businesses out there. Like you said, you're avoiding conflicts of interest. You don't have all those other businesses that are trying to make a buck. What should they be, you know, watching out for when they see research that maybe has a bias towards it? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of you know kind of subtle things that uh, that go on there. I mean, one of which is, of course, if you're in a brokerage business, then your business is to sell stocks. So if you're you know you have an incentive to be bullish or to tell people to buy stocks, uh, if you tell them to get out and go to cash, a brokerage firm isn't going to make any money from that. So you know, brokerage firms will tend to have a bullish bias uh, just by the nature of their business to what they profit from. Um, the same thing with you know advisors who might recommend certain funds and things that they get paid for, or um, if they have investment banking, they might want to tell you to buy stocks that they've uh, done investment banking underwriting for, um, that that they would you know get you know profit from trading themselves. Um, so there's a lot of ways that in the kind of in the background, um, you know companies like that can 
profit from things that are not to your benefit as an individual investor reading them. Now, there's still a lot of you know useful information you can get from them, but you kind of have to read it carefully um, and make sure that um, you know the information you're getting from them is less about do I buy or do I sell, but you know is there information about how this company is doing, how the economy is doing that I can then use to make my own independent decision about you know what I think you know is useful for my uh, economic you know kind of uh, asset allocation portfolio. So having like an investment advisor that works for you on a fee rather than just uh, you know what a brokerage firm tells you uh, can often be a better way to do it uh, because you have someone that you can talk to who's an expert, but is also not conflicted. Um, and that's why a lot of people that I work with are investment advisors in that way. And then do you think the era of picking stocks individually is gone? Should everyone just become active, passive index investors? Or do you still think there's opportunity for a normal person to get information that the marketplace doesn't have and then start to invest on that? Because that's starting to feel very rare right now. Oh, yeah, you're right. It's, it's definitely much harder now to be an individual investor and you know manage a particularly an actively you know traded you know actively managed uh, individual stock portfolio. Um, there's nothing to say you can't, couldn't do it, but there's just the competition is extreme right now. So yeah, I think a lot of people have shifted towards um, ETFs and, and other things that are uh, portfolios essentially, and that you know reflect some sort of uh, investment thesis or idea of you know whether it's you just kind of pro technology or your growth or you like value as a principle or you know kind of general uh, investment kind of approaches rather than individual you know company analysis which is just very time consuming and most people don't have time i mean if you have a day job you don't have time to sit there and look at all these financial statements and the markets and everything all day every day which is kind of what you would have to do to really build your own stock portfolio and, and expect to outperform consistently over the long term um, so I think it's just a matter of time and resource allocation that most people don't have now and that you have to either rely on an advisor or, you know, pick funds that just match your kind of, you know, personal uh, investment beliefs uh, and that you're going to hold on to for you know long, longer periods um, and that there's a million choices now. And it's much easier to find a fund that aligns with what you, you know, are looking for now, which is great. Um, a lot of them have much lower fees than they used to, which is also good. But it is harder to, to make a stock picking case nowadays. And I noticed in your research, it's not like you're picking stocks, right? You're talking about macro stuff, right? Treasury bonds or S&P no. 500, that kind of stuff. China versus US, very big macro. You're not saying, hey, go buy this random stock that I'm talking about. So now I, I, do, I do sort of pick stocks in the sense that I have a quantitative ranking model for stocks for institutional investors. Okay. But again, it's not for the necessarily for the average person to try to use um, because, again, it still requires a certain amount of uh, knowledge of the markets and sort of you know consistent oversight. It's meant for a portfolio manager primarily who comes into work every day looking for stock ideas or to check their own portfolio ideas and see if my quantitative model agrees with them or not. Um, so again, the, the the stock selection work that I do is helpful mostly for institutional managers who have to do this all day and to be able to build those kind of aggregated indicators to see if there's a lot of stocks in one sector that, that screen well right now. That's a, that's a clue. If there's a lot of stocks that screen badly in one area, whether it's China or commodity sectors or whatever, that's another indication that, okay, you might want to avoid that area. So there is a stock selection component to my work, but it's not this, what you think of as kind of looking at the management and you know visiting the company and kind of the traditional fundamental macro, right. uh, micro research um, that, uh, that you would normally see. It's meant to be an adjunct to what institutional investors do. And then what is something that, it's just a big red flag for you right now in terms of investments at the moment. When you read the news, when you see some kind of hype cycle, is there something that you just think you, everyone needs to just stay the heck away from X? Like, what would that be, or what are you staying the heck away from? Um, I mean, a lot of you know, a lot of what I see at the macro level is is, is sort of the excessive doom and gloom, essentially, um, saying that the you know the U.S. dollar is going to collapse and, uh, and and become worthless. Uh, or that you know the U.S. Treasury uh, is going to go bankrupt or won't be able to issue debt anymore, um, or, or things like that. Um, those kind of like big macro scare things, really, you know, I've been hearing them for a long time, and they've been wrong for a long time. Um, but those kind of things, you know, worry me when I hear them uh, because it'll it'll cause people to basically, you know, 
become scared and, and only hold you know cash or Bitcoin or something and, and miss you know uh, the, the other opportunities that they might otherwise have had. And um, you know, but otherwise, uh, you know, any kind of really extreme views, you know, up or down, you know, kind of make me a little nervous because it's pretty rare that that's going to be uh, you know the, the right you know way to approach things. Um, you know, overall. Um, and then, you know, other, other than that, it's going to be, you know, specific things where if people take too, too extreme a view on, say, you know, real estate, you know, most people say commercial real estate is horrible. You should avoid it at all costs. Some of it is, but some of it is actually starting to improve. Um, so, again, you want to be, you know, careful about, uh, you know, making too many sweeping generalizations uh, or all of tech is the magnificent seven. Well, it's not. There's actually a lot of technology companies that are doing pretty well. It's not just the Magnificent Seven, and even not all the Magnificent Seven are doing very well. You know, Apple isn't doing that great, for instance, uh, on an earnings basis uh, in my work. Um, so it, it varies. You have to kind of look at it more closely. Um, so when I see those kind of simplistic, um, you know, extreme views, you know, it, it makes me nervous because um, it's, it's people trying to get attention more than trying to give you useful information. So, you know, you know, what's funny is, is on this channel. Anything doom and gloom, that's what's going to get a lot of viewership, right? Oh, it's, absolutely, it's yeah. that, the, and, and I've seen tweets where people say, oh, anything. And it's like other people tweeting, other financial guys saying, hey, you know, whenever we have something bearish, it gets 10 times as many views as when we have something bullish. And so even part of this conversation, I'm, I'm trying to get you to say something that's a little bit scary because that's the headline to get people to click on it. But I, I was thinking about it before you said it, you're very moderate. Everything you're saying is, is in line, right? And, and we just had a conversation yesterday with somebody they do commercial real estate and they're seeing a lot of positives. And I'm like, wait a minute, everything I read was negative. And they said, no, 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 but we're in the right areas where it's growing, where we don't have any vacancies. We've just got all occupancy, right? And so it is like you're saying, and I do think there's this weird dynamic, especially with, you know, uh, something that's going to be on the internet, a financial show. There's a lot of media value in doom and gloom, but there's not necessarily a lot of economic value in it. Yeah, no, and that's really what I've seen. It's really been dramatic over the last year or two, but that's always been the case uh, that, that doom and gloom sells. It gets more clicks. It gets more headlines. Um, and, uh, you know, it sounds, it often will sound, you know, kind of. Um, it sounds smart. Smart, smart, yeah. And it sounds yeah. like very contrarian and like, you know, you must be on the right side if you're going against traditional conventional wisdom or whatever. But then you look at the track record of, you know, some of the people saying these things and it's, it's not working. Um, so I think you have to be real careful with that kind of stuff uh, about whether it's kind of looking for attention or, or trying to give you, you know, useful uh, information. And but it's been, you know, economically speaking, the consumer sentiment surveys, for instance, University of Michigan and consumer confidence surveys have been way, way more negative than the academic data would normally suggest it should be. And so up until about 2019, there was a pretty tight correlation between unemployment, you know, um, housing activity, uh, stock market, you know, earnings, all those kind of things were pretty correlated with what consumer sentiment was. And then all of a sudden after COVID, they, it broke, the economy got a lot better and sentiment didn't. And I think there's a lot of that kind of media influenced thing where people say it's bad and people believe it, even though it's objectively not. And I think that's what caught people off sides at the beginning of last year. Everyone's saying the market was going to go down and then went up. Um, and now they're still catching up to that um, because you know, it's all focused on what they see in the media as opposed to the underlying, you know, hard data. It's funny if you ask some of the doom and gloom people what they're invested in, they're still long anyway. <laughs> right. Well, I'm not going to be short. <laughs> yeah. Which is what you would logically assume if you believe what they were saying. Um, you'd be short everything and then just in cash or gold or something. And they're not usually. Um, but uh, so, yeah, so that, that's been the real thing that I've kind of watched, particularly being on social media and everything else. Uh, has been a really stark dynamic. And yeah, I have clients come to me and say the same thing. Like, well, you know, everything's terrible, right? We're going into recession, right? I'm like, we might someday, but it doesn't look like it right now. And, you know, not for the last year, 18 months. So, you know, yeah, the Fed raised rates so much. Yeah, but fiscal policy helped offset that. And, you know, the economy was recovering from COVID. And, you know, there's reasons why that didn't have the same impact it did in 2007. Um, so we're probably not going to have another great financial crisis. What about the fears because we see other countries, right? You see China, right? Kind of imploding a little bit, or you see countries in Latin America where the currency is worthless and you see 
currencies that get devalued. You see inflationary shocks in the thousands of percents and, and we see it and it's happening. It's in the world and it's right now, right? Like we know that's true. And it's just this question of, is the United States turning into that because the debt is massive, right? Because there's, what do you want to call it, a border crisis or a political, you know, division in this country? Like, there's enough things that people can point to, and it makes them concerned, right? Or it's, hey, it's the sentiment is bad for whatever reason, right? And if the sentiment is bad long enough, it's going to create be people to behave in a certain way, or the idea that. The average shareholder, stock owner is doing well, but the average person who maybe isn't in stocks, they're getting hurt because, okay, inflation's going up and income's going up. It's like, do you put any value in the idea that people are genuinely concerned? Like, I see bad countries around us and I see bad policymakers and I, I'm afraid they're going to put us in that position. No, you're right. Yeah. I mean, a lot of other countries, I mean, you know, have had. Uh, big problems, yeah. I mean, whether it's yeah, currency devaluations or high inflation um, or, or anything else, and those are almost always traceable to you know terrible economic policies um, and, and structural issues in their economies. A lot of them are, are small, you know, much smaller economies that are more dependent on you know foreign funding and things like that. Um, you know, the U.S. is different in many ways, partly just the size uh, and diversity of the economy. Um, but also the dollar, of course, being the global reserve currency, um, but and, and having our own energy uh, sources in, in many ways. Um, so Europe, for instance, has had a lot more trouble with energy uh, costs than the U.S. because they don't have their own oil and natural gas to the same degree we are. Um, but a lot of it, you know, are, are longer term structural issues. Like I say, what we talked about with China, um, a lot of that's been years and years in the making. So this isn't. And so, you know, COVID kind of set some of this off in China and elsewhere. Um, but it was a, it was sort of a, the match on something that was already set to, to set to burn. Um, you know, Turkey or Argentina or these places that have you know very very high inflation rates. You know, that's just years and years of just gross mismanagement by you know a multitude of different leaders um, just pursuing economic policies that, that weren't sensible at all. Um, and so, to my to me, um, you, you certainly want to differentiate those and, and be careful if you're going to invest in anywhere that you think has wobbly, you know, leadership or economic policies. And Europe, you know, is a problem because there is no, of course, central European fiscal policy. It's a, it's a collection of a whole bunch of different countries. They have one currency, but no common fiscal policy. And so they can't really coordinate, you know, unemployment benefits or banking systems supervision or, you know, uh, stimulus or whatever. Uh, they did a little bit of that in COVID, but not much. And they've, they've struggled as a result. Um, so I think there are some things that are structural like that, where if you have a currency union without a fiscal union, or you have a one-party system in China that tries to dictate, you know, growth when it's not really there, or things like that, um, and those can take years to kind of play out. Um, but eventually, you know, the kind of things come home to roost. But I think uh, the U.S. has done a, a better job of that, partly because of our structure. It's just much more open and kind of, you know, capitalistic. There's your freedom to fail, um, and because um, you know, our, our policies have been a little bit more dynamic and willing to respond to it. Um, and so I think, um, you know, as much as people, you know, sometimes complain about the, uh, you know, the, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act or the CHIPS Act or the Infrastructure Act, I think those are actually critical in, in keeping the U.S. economy in better shape than it would have been otherwise, again, compared to a lot of other economies. And I think as long as we can continue to make at least somewhat sensible economic decisions, um, then that's going to help. Um, I think if we get, you know, debt ceiling crises, which is just a made up thing or, um, you know, government shutdowns, things like that, I think that's going to be, you know, problematic. Luckily, we've managed to avoid major problems like that historically. But um, I think people focus too much on, you know, things like the, the federal deficit um, and less on what, what they're spending the money on and how and, you know, what it's doing. Um, and I think if you're investing in useful things, and that, you know, that's good. Um, and so I think you have to think about not just, you know, how much money there is, but where it's going and what it's doing. And, uh, and that gets overlooked a lot. Again, the nuance. I appreciate that. I appreciate that context. It's really good. Really good. Sam, thank you so much. Eye-opening discussion on how you're thinking about things and getting to moderation back. You know, you might only get like a few views for this because you're not scaring the world into, <laughs> into just right. putting yeah. cash in the mattress. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah, it's hard sometimes thinking about what will sell or get get the clicks uh, versus what uh, is more likely to be right or what you know investors can really use uh, to, to to manage their portfolio. 
And uh, so I've, you know, uh, I've tried to resist, uh, you know, making extreme uh, points of view just to, just to get the attention. Um, you know, I'm here again as an independent research provider to, uh, to try and give good advice um, and, and have, a, you know, a sort of a long career for that. Um, and so, uh, uh, so yeah, so whether it's uh, maybe less exciting, but uh, hopefully more accurate. Or I was going to say, that was my question is, would you rather, would you rather your uh, career be more accurate or you're selling more newsletters, right? Which one, which one matters more, right? Well, right. And sell more newsletters today, or, you know, people realize that your advice isn't very good and they stop buying it, you know, a year or two from now. And then, you know, you kind of uh, have hurt your reputation. Um, so, you know, again, whether I'm right or wrong, I at least figure like I have objective indicators I can show you that have, you know, that I can test and I can walk you through the, you know, the logic of, of what I've said and why, um, as opposed to kind of, uh, you know, more, uh, extreme views that are harder to, you know, when you dig into them, you know, tend to fall apart. That's why I asked about your personal investments because it was interesting to hear other people who are like, oh, I'm doom, 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 but I'm long all these things because if you go short, you're going to get blown up anyway. So that's why I was curious, you know, yourself. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm long equities, yeah. I have, I have equities in my portfolio. Um, I'm overweight stocks. So um, I don't do, let's say, I don't do a lot of active trading, but right. I do um, uh, kind of more or less put my money uh, along the lines of what I recommend to other like people. Like following the model, basically. Right, right, right. And then where can people to get more? So it's millstreetresearch.com. What are some other ways? Maybe are you on social media? Where other ways can uh, they can follow you directly? Yeah, you know, so on Twitter is probably where I'm most active. Uh, so it's at uh, millstresearch uh, on Twitter. Um, so I'll post there most days, you know, kind of uh, macro views uh, and, and kind of highlights of some of the, the work I do, sectors or regions or stock selection. Uh, also on LinkedIn, again, there's a uh, Mill Street Research page there. Uh, you can follow uh, where you can... Uh, uh, catch up on things. There's a blog uh, that I update periodically on the Mill Street Research website. You can uh, go to the website and put in your email and you know, get free uh, get updates whenever the blog is updated to get in kind of just to get a perspective on on things that I'm saying. There's sample reports there as well. Um, so you know if you're interested, you can certainly find a lot uh, a lot more. Uh, but yeah, I'd follow uh, Mill Street on on Twitter and LinkedIn. Awesome, awesome, Sam. Thank you so much. Thanks for. Everybody sitting through this and then listening and learning. We really appreciate it. Of course, if you like this episode, like it, share it, subscribe forward, go to Sam's website, you know, check out the newsletter. Of course, go to wealthion.com. You can check out all the information about this episode and many more over there. And if you're looking for some uh, other investment advice or someone to help manage your portfolio because you're trying to figure out what to do with all this, this information, maybe you don't want to do it yourself. We've got a form there. You can connect with investment professionals that we vet. We can, you know, we uh, have relationships with here at Wealthion that we can connect you with. There's no cost. It's just a free public service that we provide. Hopefully we can help families figure out their finances and their investments. So that's at wealthion.com. You can also check out our other shows as well. Uh, Anthony Scaramucci has a show. If you want some different hot takes and opinions once a week, he's got the, the live Q&A Fridays at 11. You can fill out the form there, or submit your questions at wealthion.com. He'll answer them on the show. Sam, thank you again for joining me. This has been really a pleasure, really a treat. Thanks so much for coming on Wealthion. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on.